You're listening to The Conservative Conscience. In Washington, politicians are full of half-truths and hot air. The Conservative Conscience is here to help you cut through the rhetoric and noise and explore the politically right way to think about the issues. You'll dive into one of the most insightful conservative minds in America. Conservative Review Senior Editor Daniel Horowitz. Using pure common sense and ignoring the groupthink, Daniel breaks down the major issues in Washington. You are now entering the conservative conscience. And welcome back to the conservative conscience on this fine Tuesday. It is April 30th, last day in April, one third of the year down in the cane already. How fast does time go by here? Anyway, we are back to regular programming after a long weekend, after a special show yesterday with a northern border agent, border agent in the northern border. Lots of good feedback from all you guys. And I understand some of you guys want, you know, government officials to be more aggressive. But, you know, the reality is, look, you know how they're going to be when they do media. They're going to be more cautious, which is why you have me, because I'm not going to be cautious with you. Um, I'm going to say it like it is. So we have a lot to catch up on that I know I'm not going to be able to get to today. But... I do apologize if I speak a little quickly today just because I'm in such a rush. So much to get to. Um, You know, there's the coup in Venezuela. There's the leftover fallout of the synagogue shooting in California and what that means. All the latest stuff going on the border, interior, crime, drugs, criminal aliens. I want to tie everything together today under the umbrella of the humanitarian crisis for the American people. We're always talking about other people, other countries, other nations, doing for others. But we never frame things in terms of doing for our own people. Again, in people's varying religions, they're taught to do for others. That is great. But from a public policy standpoint, which is what we talk about here, from a political standpoint, The assets of the United States government are for the American people, and they are not your assets to give away. When I say you, I mean a politician or anyone advocating for public policy. You could give away your own private stuff. You can't give away the American people's assets. And number two, like we always say, When it comes to protecting the American people from foreign threats, there's the issue of redressability. There's the issue that, from a public policy standpoint, you can't solve every social ill, especially nowadays with mass media, mass communications, mass craziness, crazy people doing crazy things out of nowhere. We have to work on the art of the preventable. Number one is, by definition, any foreign national we elect to bring into this country, any crime they commit by definition is avoidable. So that's why it's so important to focus on immigration, because that's an elective process that we should have the ability to vet out almost 100% bad people, illegal and legal immigration. You know... We talked yesterday about the northern border, the maritime border, but there still are the airports, which are the which is um, you know the process through which we bring people in the visa system. At the end of the day, while the borders are a looming threat, 
in terms of terrorism. We still bring people electively through our front door with visas. We're going to talk about that today. And then there are even the domestic American criminals that we don't lock up, that we do catch and release on them too, career criminals, and all of the crimes that they go on to commit after being released, never prosecuted, under-prosecuted, never sentenced, under-sentenced. They are all avoidable. So let's start with the backdrop of the shooting in the San Diego synagogue over the weekend that we we didn't get a chance to address yesterday. Obviously, it was ironic that we had a Border Patrol agent on because it appears that there was an off-duty Border Patrol agent who was attending uh, services there, and he might have helped, um, you know, at least cut the attack short um, and apprehend the guy. But he, just a couple of loose observations that I think really set the table for all the issues we, we want to talk about today. As I've said before, when it comes to these kind of mass shooting events, not always, but usually, whether they're going after churches, synagogues, or mosques, or whatever, or schools, they tend to not have a criminal record which is very enigmatic. It's a, it's a, it's a really a tough thing to deal with. Uh, they, they, they just strike out of nowhere. They're very hard to prevent. And I would say what is becoming very evident is that if you want to talk about the most preventable angle of this, aside from deterring it and tamping it down as quickly as possible with everyone carrying a gun, and that's a different story, but... It's really a cultural problem, and I don't know what you do with it in this era, but it's the issue of notoriety. There's no question that at this point there's a copycat mentality going on. This guy was almost exactly like the shooter in Pittsburgh. He was a little younger, 19 years old, with a manifesto saying the same stuff. Now, I don't know what you do because... You know, obviously the media is going to report on these things and there's nothing wrong with that. It is big news when this stuff happens. But there is this glorification of these guys. And like I told you, there was a phenomenon in the 80s of suicide. Not homicide, but suicide where people were getting a lot of notoriety for it. And the media actually, when they had morals back then, they got together and had a campaign of no notoriety. And it worked. So that, that, that's a big thing now, that I think all the psychos and haters and crazies, whatever the angle is, you know, everyone wants to focus on right, left, this religion, uh, you know, whether it's Islam or white supremacists, whatever you want to talk about, a lot of it is just, it's, it's, it's the incessant news cycle, and it just, you know, tripwires these guys. So that, that is just something, I don't know what you do about it, um, but I think that's very evident in this case. Number two, clearly, clearly having either aggressive self-defense or people armed helps. It appears that some of it was providential here, the, the firearm jammed, but this guy who was uh, also attending services, um, a different guy who was an uh, army veteran, combat veteran, 
charged at him, and the guy was very scared, and he ran away. So a couple things there. Number one, you see only one person was was killed. And as tragic as that is, you know, it's better than six, seven, eight, or 10, or 20. So, you know, it's very, like I said, it's very hard to prevent a ticking time bomb with no, you know, immigration angle. So, you know, you could vet him at the immigration level. If he's an American, you can't do that. And then if he's an American, well, maybe if he's a criminal, you could have vetted that out there. That was the case with other people, but not with this, as, as was the case with the Pittsburgh shooter, some others. There just was no paper trail of it. But certainly, if you have self-defense, you can minimize the casualties. And I think this was the first case you saw that. Um, again, some of it was divine providence, different amalgamation of factors, but this is what you see in Israel all the time. You rarely see shooting events of 10, 15 people getting killed. You just don't see that. They're usually someone, whether it's a civilian, security guard, off-duty military guy, shoots the guy down. And I think that's, that's clearly the lesson. In San Diego, you're not allowed to carry. So, I mean, I think that is really, again, we're going to keep saying this, whether it's in a synagogue or a church or you know, wherever else, people need to be carrying. But also, you see the point I made after the Pittsburgh shooting, that unlike Islamic terrorists, these white supremacist type of guys, they don't seem to have a culture of suicide. They seem to be scared of dying. And you certainly see it here. The guy ran away. He was terrified um, of that guy charging him. So this gets back to my belief that if we actually had a death penalty in this country, we essentially don't have the death penalty. For all the talk, we really don't. It's in very rare circumstances after 25 years. It's not a deterrent. But if you had, especially in cases that were incontrovertible, multiple witnesses, mass shootings, within a year, the guy was hung. No guts, no glory. And then especially connected with everyone being armed so he wouldn't get a lot of glory out of it. Maybe at best he'll kill one person, injure a couple. Again, certainly I don't want to downplay the tragedy, but you really got to wonder if that would put a lid on a lot of this. So again, I think that's just a perspective that I don't know, you know, right or left, if a lot of people are putting that out. But um, that's really the only thing you can do is deter it in that way, in my view. But these are cases of these random shootings where there's no warning signs. What about where there are warning signs? What about where we have a systemic movement inside of politics both on criminal justice reform and on immigration, the two consummate redressable issues because immigration's elective and criminal justice is in our laws and repeat offenders should be locked up. Yet we have a movement 
every single think tank that is a so-called conservative, not just in Washington, but in the states, like Oklahoma, promote jailbreak. They promote this lie that we lock up too many people for too long, when really the truth is anyone who lives outside of the political bubble and is not getting money from Soros or the Cokes understands that while there's exceptions here and there on net, for every one person you could find that we didn't need to lock up or lock up for that long, there are dozens of other people that we never lock up, never arrest, never charge, never sentence, or don't sentence for long enough. And we let them out and they go on to commit other crimes because, again, it's the 10 doing the 90. It's a 10% doing the 90% of the crime, doing most of it. There's a lot of news on this. Now, I wanted to... Right away when I put out our Thursday show, when I was talking about the fundamental transformation, social transformation without representation, how thanks to unbridled mass migration, legal and illegal, carelessly bringing in crime, diseases, social ills, is not just transforming our major cities, but even rural areas all across America, or even cities in places like Oklahoma that you wouldn't think about it. And I mentioned... I read that was the day I read the email from our listener, Darlene, about the fact that she had to move out of Texas, move to Oklahoma City, but then Southwest Oklahoma City is now getting taken over by Central American gangs. I meant to put out a second show that day. I just didn't have time because it was almost unbelievable. I mentioned Southwest Oklahoma in Darlene's email, and lo and behold, it was a terrible story out of Southwest. Oklahoma, dealing with exactly that demographic Darlene was referring to. Now, I did also want to put out another show that day, to be fair, to give good news because, you know, it was a kind of a downer show. And right after I got off the air, it came out on Thursday that U.S. Attorney Lelling, terrific guy from Massachusetts, um, indicted this state judge in Newton, Massachusetts for harboring an illegal alien and enabling him to a criminal alien gang member to escape her uh, courthouse. So I'm sure by now all of you have seen that. That's terrific news. Lelling is a great guy. I want to get him on the show, hopefully. Um, And... You know, that that is a good sign. That is something that is good news. God bless him. And I think hopefully this should, you know, serve as another factor. And I think there's a, several of them growing in this counterpunch against sanctuaries and that mentality. I think we're making some headway on that issue. So that that is a good piece of news. But we have this bad piece of news. Terrible, terrible story. Some of you might have seen it. Some of you might not have seen it. Um, It was the evening of April 19th. Riley Ewald, an eight-year-old girl. You know, I got an eight-year-old son turning nine. Um, Just like uh, any other family was enjoying a car ride with her parents on the way back from taking their dog to the vet. It was, um, you know, 5.30 Friday evening. And they were struck by a speeding stolen vehicle 
driven by Andrew Munoz and Diana Alvarez. Again, note the names and note that it was in Southwest Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. And Riley and her mother, Tanya, died in the crash instantly. And the dead, Eric, is in a hospital with broken pelvis, multiple broken ribs, a broken jaw, and a damaged spine. Family has set up a GoFundMe page. Um, it's linked to in my article on this uh, tragedy that I'll have in show notes. And it was just, just a terrible story. Terrible, terrible story. Now, what, what, what happened there? Where'd this car come from? So right, right before a cop saw this vehicle um, commit some sort of traffic violation, maybe go through a red light or a uh, 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 stop sign or something like that, and signaled for them to pull over. And this guy, Andrew Munoz, who was driving the car, pretended to slow down like they usually do. And then maybe when the cop was about to get out of the car, just stepped on the gas pedal, you know, just zoomed it, blew through a stop sign. And then this family of Tanya and Riley, they were going in the opposite direction. So they plowed right into them head first. And that's what happened. Police then discovered that the vehicle was stolen and they found um, large quantities of methamphetamine as well as firearms inside the vehicle. Um, The suspects were taken to the hospital, but they were not seriously injured, as is usually the case, unfortunately, that it's always the victim that pays for it, and that was the story. So, obviously, my first thought was to send a media inquiry to, to ICE's press shop. I said, well, look, I'm, you know, looking, just looking at the names, Southwest Oklahoma City, stolen vehicle, the drugs, the firearms, very much, you know, and then the pictures, the tattoos this guy had, it looked like an MS-13 type of deal. Um, So I was like, hey, is this another immigration story? Criminal alien story. Now, mind you, it was already a week since this had happened. You know, it didn't percolate out in the news until that day at least nationally, but, you know, so I figured you would think ICE would have gotten a hold of them by now if they would be um, non-citizens. And especially because Oklahoma, you know, it's not a sanctuary, so they, they should easily be able to get a hold of them. And I email them, and for the first time ever, I usually have luck with them. They get kind of defensive, like, where do you see there's any immigration story? And I say, well, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm just looking at, you know, the drugs and the stolen vehicle. Um, I don't I don't know if I said the name, but I mean, you know, that that that's part of it. You put put a picture together. I said, look, there, there could be plenty of them that are already citizens. I mean, there's plenty of this trash that's already citizens. And we know that and we make mistakes. That's that's part of the problem. We're going to talk about some of these cases to get today. But I wanted to know, because if I don't report on it, the media is not going to get it out. And there's no way of me knowing so whatever, they, they gave me a run around. They're like, well, find out more information. It was like, whatever. Anyway, so I looked into his criminal record. Okay? And what I found amazing is this guy, Munoz, had a 10-year history. 10-year history of um, drugs, right? Drug trafficking. 
stolen vehicles, and evading police. All of the things that he did on that day that led to the death of of this mother and daughter, he had been doing for 10 years. He had like a dozen arrests. And um, very little jail time. Was in for drug trafficking last year, served about four or five months. And he was out in August. And then here, April 19th, he destroyed this family. And I realized that is a story the media is never, ever going to report on. See, you have to understand... This Munoz dude, let's assume that they're citizens for now. So let's take away the immigration angle. Let's just take that out. Let's talk about this as if their names were John Smith. Okay. I still don't know. I still wonder, especially about the passenger who was also charged with uh, drug and firearms charges and second degree murder, Deanna Alvarez, because she did not have a criminal record. Meaning the guy with the 10 years, I'm assuming ICE in a state like Oklahoma, they would have gotten a hold of him by now if he would be a non-citizen. Her, I don't know. Also assuming it's not. But let's just speak about it from an American criminal justice standpoint. I'm here to tell you that despite the lies that you hear, okay? Despite the lies that you hear, this guy, Munoz, is the quintessential criminal for which these schmucks led by Jared Kushner refer to as nonviolent low-level offenders. These are the very guys that they just voted to reduce sentencing and slash one-third of their sentence on the back end. And remember, this guy was bad enough, a violent guy, bad enough, but he was in the state system. Remember, They're doing this in the federal system. I mean, they're doing the states too, but the legislation we tried to fight last year was in the federal system, okay? These guys are even worse because, again, the feds will only target them for federal charges if they know they're really a danger. This guy wasn't even in the federal system. And you see how little time he served. The the drug traffickers are the guys that do all sorts of other things and they endanger people. They're the ones doing the drunk driving. They're the ones doing the firearm stuff. They're the ones doing um, larceny and things like that. Often even worse things. But you look at the actual things, evading arrest, stolen vehicle, eh, that's very low level in the minds of these people. And yet we, we already don't lock them up and they think we lock them up too much. It is such nonsense. The thing is, every single one of these dudes has an advocate, both left and so-called right now, advocating for them. But families like Tanya and Riley, they don't have anyone advocating for them. Nobody. They are out on their own. They are completely out on their own. No one ever reports back on all the people that were let out of jail 
never locked up and the crimes they go on to commit as a result. It's very hard to find because the media covers them up. You have to really dig. Remember, I noted that when they passed this wretched First Step Act, letting guys like Munoz, but are, who are even worse because they're in the federal system, out after you know a third of their sentence early, between the front end leniencies, maybe lopping off 40 to 50% of their sentence. Remember, Tom Cotton tried to propose an amendment to at least require the federal government, the um, Bureau, Bureau of uh, Prisons, to send a quarter, quarterly report to Congress noting who was released, th- their criminal record, and report on anyone who was rearrested. And they blocked it. Because they knew the truth that these guys recidivate like hell. But they also knew that unless you directly have government give you that information, you will never find it. You'll hear a car crash one day, a shooting one day, and you'll never find out how he got let out. You never, ever find out how they get let out. Folks, that is a... Look, I I certainly don't want to downplay the danger to synagogues and churches, but, you know, thank God only one person was killed, and that's, that's a tragedy. But here, two people were killed. A family was destroyed. Not too many people in America know about this. And this happens every day in all 50 states, this type of stuff. This is just the one I know about. This was 100% avoidable because a punk like this should have been locked up. And yet, there is no movement to go and find these people and lock them up. But there's a movement to do the other way around. You know, those of you who have listened to this show for quite a while already are armed with all the facts that we have an under-incarceration problem, that this whole lie that there's too many people in prison is a, is a complete lie, and it's completely outdated because actually we have more crime than ever, and we now have fewer people in prison than we've had in a long time. They're making it seem like there's a record number. So guess what? None other than NBC News reported on Thursday, U.S. incarceration rate drops 10% over a decade to hit lowest level in 20 years. From 2007 to 2017, incarceration rates in state and federal prisons and local jails dropped by more than 10%, and the population of prisoners serving a sentence of more than a year declined for the fourth year in a row, BJS data showed. It's the lowest level in 20 years. This whole movement is built on a lie. President Trump campaigned against it. Yet Jared freaking Kushner has been empowered to do the exact opposite. Every so-called phony, decrepit, pseudo-conservative think tank is joining with the left. There's a think tank in Oklahoma pushing this. Every state, all 50 states, even the reddest of states, are weak on crime now. Who is going to stand for the victims? You know, Jared Kushner said... uh, um, what do you call it? He said, "It's uh, this is not a D versus R issue. This is us versus them. 
Now, I thought that was a little bit weird because what do you mean us versus them? Who's the them? No one's opposing him. I mean, I'm pretty much the last man standing. Me and Senator Cotton. The them, he means law enforcement and victims of crime. Before we move on, I just want to quickly read part of an article. I don't know who this guy is, Ethan Epstein. He's a deputy editor for Washington Times, but it's one of the few guys that I see actually shares our views on this issue, and I'm, I'm very glad he's written on it. Great article, Mania for Criminal Justice Reform, Latest Case of Butterfield Effect. He talks about the Butterfield Effect, which which uh, refers to when someone mistakes an obvious cause and effect relationship for a paradox. And he talks, talks about this. Um, Reducing sentences or even pardoning those convicted of so-called nonviolent drug offenses has become a particular point of agreement. Sen- Senator Kamala Harris of California, a former prosecutor desperately running from her law and order background to seek the Democrat nom- nomination for the presidency, suggested at a recent televised town hall meeting that she would pursue mass pardons of people in prison for such offenses. And then she goes on. OK, so he quotes her and then he goes on to say, I'm just you know, skipping around here. There's no doubt that mass drug addiction is a public health crisis, but it's not really what is driving the criminal justice crisis. The vast majority of people imprisoned are there for violent property or weapons charges, points out Rafael Manguel, who studies criminal justice issues at the Manhattan Institute. 59% of those convicted of drug possession serve less than a year, and those who receive longer sentences almost always do so because they already have long criminal records by the time they're brought up on drug charges. And I would add, as we see in this case, That's only the ones who do. Plenty of them, even with that history, don't. Moreover, as L.A. County Prosecutor Eric Sedal wrote in 2016, the overwhelming majority of nonviolent drug offenders serving prison time are there because they were convicted of transporting or selling drugs. In other words, nonviolent offender is a polite and more politically palatable way of saying drug dealer. As Mr. Um, Sedal notes, drug dealing is hardly nonviolent. Not only is there the violence that our drugs themselves inflict on their uses, but there's an extraordinarily violence unleashed by drug gangs and cartels as well. Street-level drug dealers are crucial for the cartel's ability to sustain themselves. Perhaps perhaps the most important point, though, is that those drug convictions are frequently plea bargains and they sometimes mask the real-world offense. The convict escapes a harsher charge, say illegal weapons possession, and sentenced by pleading guilty to drug possession. In federal courts, an astonishing nine of ten cases are resolved with guilty pleas, evidence of how widespread plea bargaining has become. And here's where the real irony lies. Consider, were the government to stop pursuing drug possession cases, defendants would lose their ability to plea down. Picked up on a weapons charge rather than a cop on plea for carrying some weed, you now be charged with carrying an illegal weapon and end up serving a much longer sentence. In other words, ending the incarceration of nonviolent drug offenders would actually end up increasing the prison population. Now, the one thing that he gets wrong is that the same movement that is going after sentencing for for drug offenses, they're doing it across the board, like we see for everything. So he's actually wrong on that point. We're not locking up anyone. But the guys in federal prison, I mean, these are the cartel gangbangers that usually commit murder, arson, rape, robbery, um, but they're picked up on drug charges or they're, or they're charged on drug charges, even though they're picked up on the so-called more serious offenses. 
So I just wanted to give you an update on jailbreak. We haven't talked about that in a while. But that is the consummate avoidable problem. Everyone's pulling their hair out. But if you add up all these cases of avoidable crime from people that we aren't locking up, they are much greater than the school or synagogue or church shootings, as bad as they are, and they are more redressable from a public policy standpoint. Yet there's no movement to deal with that. There's a movement the opposite. Now let's move on to immigration. More cases. This is from KFDX Clay County. Clay County, Texas. Tiny county population of like 10,000 people near Wichita Falls, near the Oklahoma border. What could get better, more rural, safer, red territory than the Texas-Oklahoma border? Well, nowhere is safe. Thanks to our importation of Central America. The Clay County Sheriff is giving more details about the suspect arrested in Clay County Monday near Vashti after a chase and five-hour manhunt. Sheriff Kenny Lemon said Douglas uh, Guvera Medrano, it's a hyphenated name, 20-year-old, is an illegal immigrant and a member of the notorious MS-13 from El Salvador. Medrano has 11 charges, including six from Dallas County, for criminal mischief and theft. He's also jailed on a federal hold for being in this country illegally. Lemon said he believes if U.S. and local immigration policies were different, Medrano would never have made it into Clay County to endanger multiple lives. Lemon said Medrano is well-known among Dallas law enforcement. He came from El Salvador in a neighborhood in El Salvador that is strictly MS-13. He lived in the Metroplex in a neighborhood where it is predominantly MS-13, Lemon said. This is not new information to these folks in Dallas. We don't have MS-13 living in Clay County, and if we can keep them out of Clay County, that's what we want to do. Lemon said that the manhunt should never have been necessary because Medrano should not have been allowed to stay in this country. Now, I don't have any information on this guy, but um, I'm going to try to find out. 20-year-old from El Salvador makes me wonder, was he resettled as a UAC? I don't know. But I'm sure he's someone who came recently. Lemon said he has information that Medrano is heading north, and that is one reason Highway 287 is a dangerous road to work because it may be used by gang members regularly. Medrano also has four charges of criminal mischief from Farmer's Branch after police said he shot at a building window with a BB gun. He also has charges of theft and failure to identify from there. Medrano has charges from Richardson for criminal mischief and and theft. So he's been all over Texas. How he wasn't deported, I don't know, but I'm going to try to find out. But again, harking back to Darlene's email we, we read from, This is what's happening even to rural Texas now, let alone the Dallas Metroplex. So um, this is where we are. All avoidable crime should never have been in the country. If we would get rid of the magnets and not let anyone in at the border illegally, 
deport everyone we can. They wouldn't come here. There you go. Then there's the garbage we bring in through the front door, legally. And we don't do anything about it. We don't do anything about it. A green card holder, you might have seen this story already. A Cuban caused a 28-car pileup in Lakewood, Colorado on Interstate 70. This was on Thursday, same day. I had so much stuff I wanted to get to that day and I didn't didn't get a chance to get to this. 28-car pileup. Usually, we never hear about this. This case, we know, is a 23-year-old Rogel Lazaro Aguila, Aguilera Medeiros from Houston. He was born in Cuba and was living in the U.S. legally with a green card. At least four people were killed. Six were taken to the hospital. So that's the story with this guy. Completely avoidable. I mean, this this is what we're we're bringing to the country. And there's another case this is from Fox News. An illegal immigrant accused of murder is stuck on U.S. soil after officials in his home country refused to accept his deportation because of his criminal history. This is a whole trend of garbage that their countries won't take back, so somehow we're stuck with them. David Panecki, 29, was caught on video fatally shooting his friend Leandro Lopez, 31, while the two were in a parking garage in Miami last month. He was supposed to be deported to Cuba nearly two years ago, but the country wouldn't take him back because of his extensive criminal past. <laughs> he was had ties to the gang Sora 13, went by the nickname Psycho, was first arrested in 2007 when he stabbed the man several times while robbing him. He was sentenced to 10 years in prison, but he was picked up uh, after another criminal charge while in jail for attacking guards at the facility. He was released in 2017, but remained in custody of ICE for a month, during which time a judge ordered him to be sent back to Cuba. But the problem is that among renewed diplomatic relations with Cuba under the Obama administration, Cuba accepts very few deportations. This is what Obama secured from him, from from Castro. Last year, they allowed less than 500 people to be returned, despite the fact that more than 37,000 Cuban nationals are facing orders of removal, according to ICE. Do you understand the clear and present danger, the humanitarian crisis to Americans that 37,000, this is just one country of criminal aliens. There's hundreds of thousands of them that remain in our country. Why is it that the default, whenever there's an unideal situation, a bottleneck of illegal immigrants clogging up um, holding facilities, Country is not willing to take them back. Logistical problems with either apprehending, detaining, or deporting. The burden has to fall upon the American people to be on the hook for the public charge, the crime, or the diseases against our laws, by the way, when the default should fall the other way. There's a fixed variable, and there's a fudgeable variable. The fixed should always be in public policy that the American people are kept safe. 
So if you got to hold them on an island, like what Australia did in Papua New Guinea for a while, which we need to be doing. If there's no place, then you hold them on an island. You hold the criminal aliens on an island. You hold and, and half the island, you have the criminals. The other half, you have a quarantine for those with diseases. But the American people should not be on the hook for this. And I want to get to diseases in a minute. But could you imagine the number of criminal aliens we have? We have easily, as of 2013, before the entire Central American surge, we had 2 million known criminal aliens in this country. We had 1.1 million people with final deportation orders that haven't been deported. You want to talk about avoidable crimes. And again, we're never going to find out the extent of how many crimes they commit each day. Never going to find out. But I'm going to try to do it. I'm going to try to get this straight. This is a very big problem. But then, but then there's a whole bunch of other cases that we let in garbage through our front door. This is from the Department of Justice press release last week. Wisconsin resident Wahiba Dais pleads guilty to attempting to provide material support to ISIS. A Wisconsin woman pleaded guilty today to attempting to provide material support to um, ISIS, a designated foreign terrorist organization, assistant attorney general for national security, uh, John Demers, um, yada, yada, all these guys were involved. Um, Basically, according to the to admissions made in connection with her plea, Dais used hacked Facebook accounts in order to support ISIS. Um, Dais posted videos providing step-by-step instructions on how to make explosive belts and TNT. And she provided a detailed recipe for the poison ricin. She had encrypted social media accounts where she was supporting them. And she was providing detailed information about explosives, guns, attack, attacks, and targeted selection. Um, this was a woman we let in. And now she's got like nine kids or something. So we're stuck with that family. Lovely. Just lovely. That's what we are stuck with now. So there's that case. I could go on and on. Tons of cases. Tons of cases. There's another case. This is a CNN article from last week. Where is this? How a convicted terrorist became a U.S. citizen. A one-time Islamic jihadist who spent years in an Israeli prison for attempting to bomb a bus was granted U.S. citizenship and allowed to remain in the country for nearly a decade as federal authorities investigated his background. The case of convicted terrorist turned U.S. citizen Valmo Shakiri raises questions not only about how Shakiri slipped past the enhanced vetting process implemented after 9-11, but also about any U.S. law enforcement and how they did not act more swiftly once his deception was discovered. Federal authorities have been aware since at least 2010 that Shakiri was arrested on a bombing-related charge in Israel and served time in prison. They've had fingerprint evidence conclusively linking him to terrorism act committed under the name Mohammed Mahadar Mohammed Shakir since early 2016. 
somebody dropped the ball, said Seamus Hughes, Deputy Director of Program on, Program on Extremism at George Was- Washington University. Shakiri carried out the attack in Israel in 1988, acting on the direction of a cell of the PLO. Um, despite his conviction, which should have barred him from even entering the United States, much less becoming an American citizen, Shakiri's application was approved, and he took the oath of allegiance on November 6, 2008, in the waning days of the second George W. Bush's administration. He was charged in September with illegally obtaining his citizenship by intentionally withholding his criminal record and past associations. Um, now, look. Obviously, he withheld that information, but why didn't we catch that? In other words, immigration is an elective process. Anyone coming into the country, we should have a process to know conclusively that he is not a danger, is not carrying diseases, and will not be a public charge. Those are the big three. Crime, or terrorism certainly, diseases, public charge. 8 USC 1182, it's been there since the dawn of times in some capacity when the states and colonies regulated it, then the feds in the 1880s, 1890s. It's been there ever since. The laws are not the problem. It's the malfeasance, and look, this occurred under the previous administrations. It's the malfeasance of previous administrations. Nothing in our laws compels us to bring this in. That's the story. Nothing compels us to bring these people in. And in fact, the laws say you are not allowed to bring these people in. Plain and simple. Why aren't we invoking it? And that leads me to the next part of this humanitarian crisis. The health concerns. I don't know how this guy was able to go off script, but thank God he did. Aaron Hull, chief patrol agent of the El Paso sector, said on Sunday to Fox's Maria Bartiromo that Border Patrol is increasingly, quote, caring for more and more sick people because a lot of these aliens coming in are carrying contagious health conditions, things like chickenpox, scabies, tuberculosis, and lice. So he said it straight up. Not that we needed him to say it, but now we have a government official saying it. They're coming with TB. Okay? TB specifically has been pointed out in law since 1907 that they cannot come here. They're inadmissible. Any, this is 1182A1, the very first inadmissibility of 1182. The very first priority. So don't tell me our laws are broken. We need new laws. No, the laws say that any alien who has failed to present documentation of having received vaccination against, and it lists a whole bunch of things, they are inadmissible. Moreover, 
8 U.S.C. 1222A requires the government to detain them, quote, for a sufficient time to enable the immigration officers and medical officers to subject such aliens to observation and an examination sufficient to determine whether or not they belong to an inadmissible class. Yet, they now admit they're coming with TB. So if they admit that there's smoke, there's fire, because if they're treating people with it, then that means that there's, I mean, it's, it's, it's contagious as anything. They're in the worst conditions huddled together coming in, coming from the source countries. So guess what that means? There's so many more that have the symptoms. Remember, remember, person is exposed to the bacteria through airborne, you know, coughs, sneezes, speaking even. According to CDC, some develop TB disease soon, but they say soon within weeks after becoming infected before their immune system can fight the bacteria. Other people get sick years later when their immune system becomes weak for another reason. And another point to keep in mind is the most common people get TB now, it's not everyone, but most common are those with HIV. There are a number of people coming from um, Central America with HIV. In fact, the media even interviewed, CNN interviewed one from Central America, this woman from Guatemala the other day coming in a caravan with HIV. So they're really going to be susceptible to getting it. But again, I have it straight up in um, from this bipartisan, what is it? The Homeland Security uh, Advisory Council put out a report. First of all, 73% of the children coming are under 12 the most susceptible to carrying this stuff. And that I have it clearly from them that they are not vetting it out. It's If someone has the symptoms right there, they'll probably see it. Or if they ask for medical help. But they don't screen out each one as required by law to ensure that they didn't contract it and keep them in an incubation location and a period of time to know that we're confident. No, we let them out within hours. Within hours. It's unbelievable. This is why, according to Texas authorities, TB is an ongoing issue in the state of Texas. 61.4% of TB cases were associated with immigrants. Rates are higher along the border counties. 53% were reported among Hispanics, but then, you know, it goes to other people too. It's unbelievable. We now know, this is from Judicial Watch, when we had the first wave of Central Americans in 2014. They sent out an email. Judicial Watch got this through a FOIA request. Dr. Alaric Denton, a CDC environmental health scientist, put out an email, we might as well plan on many of the kids having TB. Most of these kids are not immunized, so we need to take to make sure all our staff are immunized. But remember, they're coming in with new strains of all sorts of stuff that we previously eradicated. Who's to say even the vaccines still work? You know, what we're seeing with this measles outbreak is that some of the people that got the shots are getting it now. Who knows what happens when you bring these people in? And another thing, even the ones that we catch and treat, we don't treat them in in an Ellis Island type of setting. We bring them to American hospitals and expose everyone there. Remember, we had a couple months ago on this show, Yuma County Sheriff uh, Leon Wilmot 
said that one guy was escorted to the hospital in Imperial County, California with TB. He jumped out a window and escaped. I also looked um I also looked at this AMF disease that Zach Taylor the border the retired border patrol agent we had on the show last week mentioned. Holy smokes is this creepy. I forgot about this. I remember writing about it at the time. This disease acute flaccid myelitis AFM is this mysterious polio-like disease that causes paralysis mainly in kids, but it starts out as an innocuous cold. Both that and enterovirus D68 both started around August 2014. It's unbelievable. August 2014, okay? August 2014. And to this day... CDC and all the medical establishment say it's a mystery what is causing this. We've had thousands of cases of enterovirus. We've had, every year since 2014, we've had AFM. Um, what's the numbers? It looks like 550 Americans, according to CDC. 550. 90% of them were children. Okay, so to this day, they are saying they don't know what is the cause of it. The only thing that the experts are increasingly believing, which seemed to be obvious, but now they're admitting it, is that AFM is likely caused by enterovirus D68. Now, let me ask you something. CDC never even tracked AMF. They never tracked it. They didn't have anything on it from their beginning until August 2014. They don't know, they don't have any other variables that changed. They don't have an answer. But I have one variable. In May, June, and July is when the Central American children came in in earnest for the first time in large numbers to America. Okay? I don't have proof they brought it in. It's a very strong correlation. I don't know. But what I do know is how do you rule that out but say you don't know anything else when that is the most prima facie, logical, new event that took place? You know, something like to say on enterovirus, well, actually, the first known cases were in California in 1962. It was in America, not in foreign countries. Yeah, that was like a handful of cases we had from 1962 until 2014, and then from mid-August 2014 to January 15, 2015, there were 1,395 confirmed cases of it. Gee, what happened then? And then AMF was unknown completely before 2014. I don't have anything more on that, but use your brain. Could it be that Central Americans were immune to it, but brought it in, carried it, but because they were there, they were immune to it, but Americans weren't? I don't know. But again, almost all children. And remember, in the 2014 crisis, officially, they were unaccompanied aliens. So officially, they're resettled as refugees. So officially, they're held for a while in HHS facilities where they have all sorts of healthcare screening and um, 
uh, you know, vaccinations. None of that is happening now with the family units. They're not held at all anywhere, most of them. They're released within hours. On those grounds alone, the president should give a speech and shut it off. And this leads me to my final point. Some of you might be wondering, Daniel, what do you think about the president's guidance last night? Late last night it was released. The president has a new border guidance. He announced three things. Broadly, what he's doing is it's a futuristic maybe announcement like he always does. He issues a directive, but then doesn't necessarily follow through with them. In short, it's too vague and it's too parsimonious. It's too glancing. It vaguely, it addresses the the, the parsimonious aspects of this and then even then does so in a glancing way. So there's three things. First thing it does is it he promises to end work permits for these people. Well, look, I'm glad he, they read my article because I'm pretty much the only one who wrote an article on that. We've, we've given out like seven, 800,000 of these work visas, but that's discretionary. Nothing in law mandates that. Why was he doing it for two years? Why was he continuing Obama's policy? So it's like, I'm going to, after two years of fanning the flames, I'm going to stop one element that further, you know, increase the flames. Okay, but that's not putting out the flame. I mean, that's good. Don't get me wrong. And I'm glad they're at least listening. But that in itself is kind of a self-indictment. Next thing is they're going to charge money for fees for asylum applications. Well, remember, only like 6 to 10% are even going through with the applications. We're releasing them anyway without it. So I don't know if that's going to deter them. Number two is if you would enforce it, that sounds pretty good because they likely don't have the money. But then what are you going to do? Make them inadmissible? Right, really. I mean, what are you going to do? Let's say they don't pay. So that would mean that they don't qualify for asylum because they're not paying the fee. Or it it definitely should mean that. <clears throat> and if they're not paying, then they should be inadmissible and placed into expedited removal, right? And I think that's pretty obvious. But are they going to do that? In other words... The main thing they need to do is say everyone's in expedited removal. We're turning down all the bogus asylum in a rocket docket in a tent city right away. Either we're not letting them in. Either we're having a full shutoff, 1182F, certainly because of 1182A1, the diseases. If you don't want to do a complete shutoff, at least a rocket docket, and then have airlifts. Do you know who did airlifts? Obama in 2014. That's how he shut that down. Instead, they're like, well, you pay for it. And then the final thing is directing DHS and the Attorney General to come up with a process of expediting this stuff to no more than 180 days. 180 days? Law requires it be no more than seven days. Don't try to deal with the whole pool of people now. Deal with the first tranche coming up the next pipeline and have it ready to have an airlift, expedited removal. Oh, you want to have a credible fear? Then rocket docket right away, dispense of the appeal within seven days. You don't even have to vitiate florists because you'll get that in under 20 days, and you're out of here. But they don't want to do the real stuff. 
So if you're not going to enforce that, I'm not sure what the fees are going to help. I don't know. I mean, time will tell. What do they mean by a process to expedite? They're kind of vague. It could mean some of what I'm saying. Maybe. I doubt it. But it's vague. Um, so now it does mention somewhere in there to go after, to empower ice or give them more resources to, um, go after people. You know, the, the other idea I said that to start deporting the people with final deportation orders, but again, like that's current law. I mean, yeah, you should be doing that. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't know why not. I mean, it's better than not doing it. I'm just saying he picks the parsimonious things. The big things they need to do that they can do is 1182F shut off, 10 cities, rocket docket, immediately giving asylum adjudication to Border Patrol, not USCIS, turning it down at the point of origin, not in the country. Once they're in the country, you, you could say, oh, I wave my magic wand to get this done in X amount of time. You can't do that. You got to do it at the border and vitiate florists, which they can do. And I don't know why that's not in this. So this is just bizarre. Now look, 1158 D3, you know, does allow the attorney general may impose fees for the consideration of an application for asylum for employment authorization under the section and for adjustment of status. Um. Now the fees shall not exceed the attorney general's costs in adjudicating the applications. So I don't know how how, how you could even charge it. Um. So, what's unclear to me is what happens thereafter. Let's say they don't pony up the money. In other words, at some point you got to be willing to do airlifts. And you got to be willing to do 1182 shutoff and a rocket docket in 10 cities. If you do it, it ends. If you don't, this doesn't. There's a couple of parsimonious things on my list that I put on my list that they might be doing, but those are the essential elements. Anyway, the point is, it's you can't adjudicate your way out of a crisis, or out of an invasion. You have to deter it. And... In order to do that, you have to have the mindset that this, first and foremost, is an issue for the American people, not foreign nationals. And it's time, with all this mayhem and crazy people in this country committing sorts, all sorts of acts that are, are very hard to prevent, it's time to deal with the art of the preventable. Deal with the career criminals in America and lock them up, and not allow in a single immigrant that will be a harm to Americans in any way fiscally, health-wise, crime-wise. There's a lot of wonderful people in this globe of God's earth, 7.8 billion people we could bring in, but nobody should be let in until we are sure about that. And you know what that means? Simply applying current law. Thanks so much for listening. God bless y'all. You could always send your comments, concerns, and questions to dhorowitz at blazemedia.com. Tweet me at rmconservative. Till next time. This has been another episode of The Conservative Conscience.